Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. More than 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed. The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, welcome back, dress listeners. We are still actually standing on the Rue de Lupe waiting to continue our tour. <laughs> totally still there, jackhammering, honking cars, all of it. We're still there. But don't worry, because we are going to, as promised, like part one of this series, transport you back to the period when the Rue de la Paix was known as the most luxurious shopping street in the world. And what better way to start today's episode than with the haute couture house of a man who can arguably be called both the founding father of the haute couture and the founding father of the Rue de la Paix. We are standing at seven or set. Rue de la Paix, and I'm wondering, dress listeners, do you have any guesses? He was the subject of our very first episode of Dress. Yes, I think that many of our listeners are already well aware <laughs> of what's coming next. Yes, because of course, 7 Rue de la Paix was the home of the house, of the Haute House of Charles Frederick Worth. So this is where it all started, and of course, we could have started the Rue de la Paix tour here, but then we'd be standing in the middle of the street. So I hope you understand why we started at one end and walked towards the other. But we've arrived at the place where arguably the fashion reputation of the Rue de la Paix started was with Worth. And actually standing in front of it, the building almost looks exactly as it would have been when Worth opened his first atelier with his business partner, Otto Boberg, at this very site over 160 years ago, and that was in 1858. Yeah, and I just have to say, when Cass and I were kind of like preparing to do this tour, and we were kind of walking the streets and and, and doing all the prep, we both got a little emotional about the fact that we had seen so many pictures of the House of Worth on the outside um, from the 19th century. And then when we're standing across the street from it, it looks exactly the same. It hasn't changed at No, all. it really hasn't. And we're going to post pictures of, of course, the contemporary and historic photographs of these places. We took a lot of pictures and we're going to do some side-by-side comparisons so you can see because not all of the storefronts look the same, but the House of Worth does. It was pretty incredible to imagine what it would have been like during this the heyday of the street. So Worth opened his first business with Otto in 1858. He was solo by 1870-71. In between this period, he had earned the patronage of the Empress Eugenie herself. So, you know, no big deal. And he became the official designer of the court by 1864. So needless to say, clients flocked in droves in their carriages to the Rue de la Paix, and they would actually wait on this outdoor staircase in order to gain entrance. And sadly, we looked, we walked into the courtyard. The staircase is gone, but one can imagine... It seems as if that interior courtyard that we've seen in photos has been like divided in half now somehow. The staircase isn't there anymore, but um, we d- we were quite curious, I have to say. <laughs> 
And in terms of the significance of all of what we're saying, we just want you to remember that this term haute couture was not really a term that had existed in Worth's day. This was a new term, and he was largely responsible for setting up the precedence for this elite designation within the industry. And he kind of like built up this presence on the Rue de la Paix around this elite industry and his presence on the street. And Worth himself can be credited for many innovations, including the concept of the designer as tastemaker. And this is something that we're incredibly familiar with today, that it's like, you know, the designer who is the creative visionary. But this was an entirely novel concept in the 19th century because prior to this, it was kind of the client who would instruct their dressmaker or their tailor as to what they wanted not the other way around. It wouldn't be the maker that was the, you know, quote unquote, creative genius. So, you know, part and parcel to worst dictatorial control of his clients' wardrobes or what he envisioned that they should be wearing was also how he presented himself to the world and to his clients. And he really did so as an artist. He even went so far as to adopt artistic clothing and he dressed the part cast, right? A la Rembrandt is, is one comparison. <laughs> yeah. And, and so much so, like this kind of like adopted persona was so ultra or kind of like out there that in 1890, Harper's Bazaar wrote that Worth could be seen around his couture house on the Rue de la Paix, quote, during his official hours, moving slowly about with two black dogs at his heels, his tall figure wrapped in a loose robe with the finest brown wool, a silk skull cap on his well-shaped head, and an introspective look upon his serious face. And there's actually wonderful photographs of him out there. So if you want to just Google Charles Frederick Worth and you will know exactly what we're talking about. So another of Worth's important contributions was his innovative organization of the Couture House by not only the specialties of tire and flu, so tailoring and draping departments, but he also created these other niche specialties like setting sleeves, making linings, embroidery. This essentially created an assembly line process whereby a single garment would be passed along the chain for the worker to execute their specific task before handing it off to the next employee to execute their specialty and so on. So this was a novel notion given that under old models, sometimes a single person might complete a garment's construction with additional support from only an embroiderer or a beater. And this is super interesting because this is one of the chief complaints by say, like the arts and crafts movement against the Industrial Revolution, is people really started, you know, mechanizing what once used to be super creative process and breaking them down to be what is the most productive and efficient. Absolutely. And this was actually, though, one has to argue what allowed the Couture House to expand significantly, because by 1870, the House of Worth employed approximately 1,200 employees, and some of them actually lived on the premises of the Couture House or in nearby buildings that were employee dormitories. And also, I think this is really quite fascinating that many Couture Houses at this time also provided lunch for their employees or their staff in these kind of like really light and airy employee dining rooms that were part and parcel to all these multi-level buildings that these businesses were in. And we actually have a multitude of photographs of some of these things. 
Yeah, and we'll actually post some of them because there's an incredible book that came out in 1910, Creators of Fashion, that really provides this wonderful behind-the-scenes element that you just don't often get to see. So, And I just love this one particular memory of the 19th century Rudolapay from a 1920s book, A History of Feminine Fashion, which says, quote, During the empire, the Rudolapay, and this is, of course, the empire of Napoleon III, the Rue de la Paix was at its most magnificent. Every Friday, great ladies used to drive through it on their way to the Bois in gowns elaborate enough for ball dresses and trimmed with miles of Valenciennes and Valenciennes lace, of course. They rode in open carriages and their footmen wore powdered wigs and breeches of satin. Madame Moussard used to drive through the Rue de la Paix and particularly splendid specimens of the carriage maker's art, which were lined with white satin and drawn by the most magnificent Horses procurable. Once this lady created a scandal by coming to Worth's dressed in a mannish suit and driving a male coach four in hand, and she was actually alone in the box. She had, quote-unquote, two lackeys behind and two outriders following the carriage with fresh horses to replace. But between her masculine attire and her horsemanship, she managed to block the traffic that day in the Rue de la Paix. <laughs> I kind of like her already. I know. It just speaks to the eccentricities, right, of a lot of these clients. They're not all the same. They're no way a monolith. And I love that she, you know, is also wearing trousers, essentially, and driving a horse carriage to what would, I think, be her haute couture fitting. Not entirely sure. Um, (laughs) It was also said of this great fashion maker, Madame Moussard, that, quote, her jewels were only equaled in magnificent by her horses. Her jewels were in sets, as was the fashion at this time. And every Friday, she would send her emeralds or her rubies to the workshop, so to the House of Worth, to be sewn on her bodies or her blouses as trimmings. So pretty remarkable if you think about what that means. Yeah, it's basically the bodice of her dress. She's sending in all our jewels, like, please sew these to my dress that I'm going to wear this weekend. Yeah. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> As were over apparently also the diamonds cast that she used to wear in her hair because it has said that she was one of the first to wear in her hair this waved bandeau, like kind of like a headband that was actually a string of diamonds. That's baller, I'm just saying. <laughs> and let's talk about for a second, you know, if we're on the Rue de la Paix, let's talk about what clients' experiences must have been like. And it has been written that their experiences in terms of shopping, were just as luxurious as their garments were ultimately destined to be. And this whole world of entering the Worth Couture House has actually been described by a French fashion historian, Olivier Courteau, as, quote, Visitors were greeted at the door by well-mannered young men in frock coats after ascending the grand staircase covered in a thick red carpet lined with exotic plants, worse wealthy clients were shown to a spacious and also light drawing rooms located on upper floors. The first room, sparsely furnished with chairs and glass cabinets, contained white and black silks. A second room, called the Rainbow Room, displayed silks in all colors, and a third contained fabrics such as velvet and plush. Then came the actual showroom, where all the latest creations were on display against a wall of mirrors. Good-looking young women stood at their stations, ready to put on a dress upon request and model it in front of the prospective buyer. The last room, called the Salon de Lumiere, was lit artificially, thus offering the client the opportunity to try on the dress of her choice in an environment similar to what she might expect 
at an evening party. So just to break that down really quickly, this is so fascinating, right? Because this this is like a whole new experience. Not only are you greeted by these kind of like galleries, which are essentially touting the finest textiles in the entire world, which are going to create your outfits, you then get to go and like pick out a lovely young woman to try on something that you might be interested in. And they would live model it for you. And also you could take it into a different room to see what it would look like under quote unquote artificial light. So they're pushing all the modernity here, basically. Oh yeah, next level shopping experience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So in 1894, the New York Times wrote an article called In a World Famous Shop. And they they talked about how nothing is seen at the seamy side. All the machinery of manufacturer, workrooms, patterns, untidiness are relegated to back premises, and save for the fitting by a harried runner or matcher or fitter, nothing of the inner life is visible except when at rare intervals, the prince of dressmakers, this is worth, strolls solemn and abstracted through the rooms from his studio to the ateliers, from the study where he composes to the workrooms where his ideas take practical shapes. So I thought that was really lovely. And again, it also speaks to that behind the scenes element that you just don't know that much about. And honestly, April, what we know about it skims the surface too. I think there's a lot of work there still to be done um, by historians. For sure, for sure, for sure. Or if it's out there, please share it with us because we have not seen it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, we do have the reference that you referenced earlier, which is the 1910 publication, Criteria de la Mode. and, And we will post images from that, which are quite fascinating to us as fashion historians. I think it might be time to move on to a new location. What do you think, Cass? Absolutely. And we are walking just a short, I don't even know, 15 feet, April 20 feet, to Trois Rue de la Paix, 3 Rue de la Paix, where the queen of the Rue de la Paix resides. Yes. And we are, of course, talking about the House of Pecan. And while the story of the House of Pecan might be centered around who is now identified to be its head designer or creative force, Jen. The House of Pecan was actually in part a business that was started by her husband, Isidore, even before they met. And the reason for that is because he was a partner in a couture house that was actually located at 3 Rue de la Paix, which was called Pecan, La Lanne, AC. And he actually first caught the very first glimpse of his future wife, Jen, as she was crossing the street across from his couture house, entering a neighboring couture house because she worked as a midinette at the Maison Roof, which was kind of located down and around the street in the general area of the Place Vendôme. So, In 1891, Isidore actually happened to dissolve his business relationship with his other two partners, and then he opened the House of Pecan in its stead on his own, and one month later, the couple was married. And the house's success was meteoric after this happened, far eclipsing the house of worth by the dawn of the 20th century to ultimately become the world's leading and actually largest couture house because it actually had all these international branches. It had one in New York, had one in Buenos Aires, Madrid, and also in London. And the number of employees estimated the height of popularity of the House of Bacan range anywhere between 1,500 to 1,700, far eclipsing the House of Worth. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, he saw the talent and potential of partnering with his wife. It's so incredible what these two did together. The house's success was, of course, thanks to Jen's stellar and innovative designs, which we've talked about on the show previously, as well as their innovative marketing techniques. But it was also about how they treated their clients. To the pack hands, every client was treated like a queen, which is something I just love. So if you had been a client at Pecan and you walked up to the door at 3 Rue de la Paix, you would have actually been greeted personally by the couple when you entered the door, which was apparently quite out of the ordinary at other haute couture houses. I don't know if Worth was answering the door in his artistic (laughs) (laughs) leisure wear. (laughs) With his dogs in tow. So once you entered the establishment, you were welcome to, quote, a luxurious, welcoming private living room rather than a place of business. So this is, of course, according to Pacan scholar Jeanne Reeder, who wrote a really lovely biography about Jeanne. And the rooms apparently were very classically and elegantly decorated. It was a very welcoming and intimate space. And one thing I absolutely love about the decor was apparently, April, there was mermaid-shaped door handles. So a little magic sprinkled in there, too. <laughs> yeah. How does that not want to make you buy things? So you want to buy things right now. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, if you want to learn more about Pecan, as I said, you can. we've done an episode about her previously, or that included her on um, the Birth of the Modern episode from season one. So check it out. Yeah. And that was one of our very, very, very first episodes. All right, so moving on, if you had been on the Rue de la Paix on November 25th, 1920, you might have witnessed some movie cameras capturing all of the workers, the midinettes, um, streaming out of the couture houses at noon, wearing their St. Catherine's Day bonnets. And I love this so much. Um, I love it so much that we have already done an episode on St. Catherine's Day, so you can check that out for further details if you haven't already. But basically, St. Catherine's Day was this festive day of celebrations for the fashion industry, and everybody participated. You know, basically, work stopped. They held all these really kind of elaborate parties, and giant feasts were thrown, and everybody put on fancy dress or are dressed up in costumes. And of course, you know, these are fashion workers' friends. So you can imagine some of the costumes that they had made for themselves. But especially celebrated on St. Catherine's Day were the young unmarried women aged 25 that were working in the fashion trades. And they were kind of dubbed that year as the Catherinettes and very much celebrated. One of the first things that they did, they attended church. And they attended church to pray for a husband, right? Because I mentioned this earlier. (laughs) They were the unmarried fashion workers. (laughs) But also, like in the context of all of this, they were being loved and celebrated and adored and showered with affection by all of their colleagues and coworkers who also made them these really elaborate and fanciful hats, which were kind of the marker of St. Catherine's Day. Yeah, so Women's Wear Daily actually did an article in the 1920s on these so-called bonnets. They were, quote, made of net, tulle, gauze, and lace, decorated with green and white ribbons, and in most cases, orange blossoms. Some very elaborate ones were seen in lace, generally presented to their premier or forelady by the girls. So the girls would make hats for, um, you know, their supervisors, essentially. And the real lace ones, these were trimmed with pearls or gold pins like those worn in Dutch headdresses, some in real lace. There was others in silver or gold lace. 
And it was actually said that the girl who was most popular is the one who came out of the couture house wearing the most bonnets or had the most (laughs) flowers because she was being showered that day with affection. And we're actually going to provide a link in our show notes because there is one of these videos that survives of this day. And you can see, you know, again, be transported back to this wonderful scene. There's so many to have been witnessed over the years on this street. Yeah, for sure. And 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 also too, like another one that I would like to have been part of is this scene that apparently happened on September 26th in 1927. And if you had been there, you might have witnessed the great Polish opera singer Ganowalska, who was holding up traffic on the Rue de la Paix. <laughs> As one does, apparently. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a whole thing. It's a scene. It's a vibe. Right? Isn't that what we say now? It's a vibe. Yeah. But according to a correspondent from the New York Times, the opera singer was so wonderfully dressed that, quote, the midinettes, chauffeurs, and passersby of all kinds stopped to look until so many hundreds had gathered that traffic was entirely stopped and the police were powerless. (laughs) I actually think we could do a whole episode just on, like, traffic stopping fashion. Oh, yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, it's totally a thing. So, hmm, I will keep that in my back pocket, proverbial pocket. So, the article continues, quote, in a magnificent car painted olive green, Madame Vasca sat, attired in a cherry red velvet with gold embroidery, papaha Russian Cossack hat that was apparently about a foot in height, which caused many witty remarks. Around her, she had wrapped a sable cloak worth $50,000, and that is at the time, $50,000, and half a million dollars worth of emeralds and sapphires decorated her neck and arms. She wore the famous emerald of the Grand Mogul of India, probably the largest emerald in the world, end quote. So where have we heard that claim before? <laughs> yeah, and and I just want to say that um, if you've already heard our Paris recap, you know that we went to the Van Cleef and Arpels or Van Cleef and Arpels show. And actually, one of the amazing, incredible jewels that we saw in that show belonged to her. And even though it predated the date of the brooch that it was part of, it was such an important jewel that the jewel itself was actually incorporated as this giant teardrop into a bird's beak. Like, so they created a whole new jeweled brooch and one of her single jewels was like this jewel that like a drop that was coming out of the bird's beak. It was amazing. Yeah. And such a treat too, because we're like, we know her, we know her. Mm -hmm. We were there in 1927 (laughs) when she held up traffic. So apparently what was so fabulous about this is this was all a publicity stunt by Vasca. Of course it was. Because she was intending to promote her perfume, her new perfume shop just opened on De or Two Rue de la Paix, which is the very next stop on our tour. So we're standing in front of Two Rue de la Paix, once the site of Ganavasca's perfume shop. So her very first year she opened, she was selling perfumes called Pour le Sport which we'll talk about in a second, Blue Ribbon, and then Divorçon, which were given prominent place in the display windows, apparently. And this Divorçon is actually translates to Let's Get Divorced, <laughs> which is super interesting because the very next year, she was sending a very clear message because in 1928, news of the singer's divorce from her multimillionaire husband, Harold McCormick, began making the international news. So she basically was like, I'm opening this shop. Here's my perfume. We're getting divorced. Here you have it. Yeah, exactly. (gasps) 
Well, her perfume Porlis Sport actually had quite a fascinating connection with her next-door neighbor because on November 19th, 1927, Women's Wear Daily reported that a certain, quote, maker of hand-knit sweaters is about to move on December 15th to a new premises at 4 Rue de la Paix. So this is more or less, Cass, going to be the final stop on our tour because this is actually the very first house of the one, the only, perhaps April's all-time favorite designer, Elsa Scaparelli. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> we have we have already done an entire podcast episode on her. You can check that out. But Scap's first incarnation of her retail space was actually called Port Le Sport, which is for sport, right? It was a sportswear boutique. So far from what, let's say, Worth was offering at the time, or Paquen, it was a little bit of a humble enterprise, and her showrooms and her workrooms occupied the top, the very, very top floor, which was at the time the cheapest floor, right, for Rue de la Paix. And this is also a space where she lived. And Poor Le Sport was nothing at all like these grand salons that occupied these entire buildings that these other fashion purveyors on the Rue de la Paix, you know, had been well-established in at this time, but she never really had any intention of being exactly like her fellow haute couturiers, which is, of course, why we love her and why she is quite so modern. She really set herself apart from day one by creating sportswear for the modern woman, for making the designs for her contemporaries, you know, almost instantly passe with her kind of like fresh and unique take on fashion and her approach to design. Yeah, because if you look at, say, the creations of Doucet and Worth, her neighbors at this time, they're creating made-to-order gowns for the world's wealthiest women. And Scaparelli was, as Women's Wear Daily noted, quote, a house which confines itself largely to sweaters. So not exactly the same thing. (laughs) But these were not your average sweaters, as I'm sure many of you know. They are so incredible. They were hand-knitted. They're done in a variety of bright and bold colorways that featured any number of playful motifs and abstract designs. This includes her now famous Trompe l'oeil bow that became an instant success. I really wish they would recreate that. Actually, I would totally buy one today. I think there are people that have already recreated the knitting pattern and you can have it made or Uh knit it yourself. Okay. Reach out to us. Um, (laughs) She didn't stop at sweaters, though, of course, but offered a variety of other items for the active woman, including the most delightfully fun beach pajamas and even swimsuits, which women's wear daily reported these swimsuits were accompanied by crocheted berets or sailor hats. So maybe not swimwear to get actually in the water, but maybe so, actually. Fashionable at the beach. Yeah. (laughs) This is what we're doing, friends. Yeah. (laughs) And immediately it took off and her business continued to expand and by 1931, her business occupied a large part of the, the, the building located at 4 Rue de la Paix. And Women's Wear Daily dedicated a full-page article on SCAP under the headline, Couturiers Who Count, saying, quote, Now the firm occupies a large part of the building with attractive salons on the second floor, done in white with touches of black and white colors, and such unusual details as ropes slung along the walls from which to spend samples of woolens, gay scarves, and an odd sweater or two, although the business has far extended beyond mere sports clothing. Also in 1932, Wednesday Daily says, Scaparelli 
is announcing a new shop on the Rue de la Paix, which will be a separate entity from her main establishment. In this new place, she will carry a few ready-made garments, scarves, necklaces, and bags at prices, which may be slightly lower than her major salon. So again, so different from the haute couture houses, right, on the establishment. Um, 1931 was also the year Vogue commented on Scaparelli's meteoric ascendancy to an international leader in fashion in a very short period. Um, They say in three short years, Scaparelli and sport have become almost synonymous to all followers of fashion. The article really provides fascinating insights into her design process. They talk about how she's not hampered by any of uh, dressmaking traditions. They say, quote, she possesses a strong sense of color as well as many ideas. She makes a bold attack on fabrics. The conventions of cut held no restraint for her. The result was smart, unusual, individual clothes that have a practical side as well and no stigma of eccentricity, which I just think is hilarious because obviously the 1930s... We (laughs) We know what's about to happen in terms of Scaparelli. They also talk about how she creates all her models herself and supervises her salons where they say she can be found working in her studio or attending a fitting. So she's really hands-on at this point in her career. And she's you can see how and why her business is so successful because she's part and parcel to almost every single process. Yeah. And, and she was a little bit older at this point. We must point out that she was in her late 30s when she very first got her start at the encouragement of Paul Paré. <laughs> So by 1932, Scaparelli's haute couture house had spread to be eight ateliers with 400 employees. And by 1935, she actually, you know, kind of had busted the seams of her former location and she needed a larger premises. So she moved just a little bit further down the street and around the corner to 21 Place Vendôme. And the site of the Couture House at 21 Place Vendôme is the site of Scaparelli to this very, very day. And Cass, you have heard me say, and our regular listeners have heard me say, that if I had one holy grail of fashion that I would like to own someday, it is a garment or a scarf or a hat or something of Scaparelli's that is made from her signature newspaper print. Well, Did you know that this newspaper print, which is, you know, like a collage kind of type situation of newspapers stacked on top of each other, it was actually created out of all of the press clippings, which were covering her move to her new headquarters at 21 Place Vendôme. So this is so cheeky and it's so Scaparelli, and this makes me love it so much. (laughs) So the Couture House and uh, the Ready to Wear Boutique for Scaparelli in its modern-day incarnation is still at 21 Place Vendôme today. The house, of course, was relaunched in 2012, and they were able to kind of get the lease on their former address, which Which is is pretty amazing. amazing. I mean, absolutely incredible to be able to, like, go there, too. Yeah, and so they don't occupy the entire building like they did at that time. The main area are on the upper floors, and the Couture Ateliers are incredibly located towards the rear of the building on the upper floors as well. And we just want to send a very, very special thank you to Paul DeClerc for the really lovely tour that he gave us when we were in Paris. This was an incredibly special treat as a Scap fan and as a fashion historian to, you know, just kind of like get our wander around these hallowed halls in my mind of the House of Scaparelli. <laughs> so highlight of my life. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, thank you so much, Paul. It was such, such a treat and a pleasure, to, especially to get to see the ready-to-wear collection and a couple of couture pieces up close. Absolutely. Yeah. 
It was so cool. And we, of course, took lots of pictures in front of the Scaparelli. Um, what do you call that, April? An umbrella that they have outside the boutique front awning, the awning. Um, that says Scaparelli. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's at 21 Plaza Von Dome where we end our Rue de la Paix tour. So hopefully it makes sense to you why we started at the very other end of the street now because we had to stop. We had to end the tour with Scaparelli because she was literally the future of fashion in so many ways. And her moving from the Rue de la Paix really heralded the beginning of the end for the Rue de la Paix's claim as the most fashionable street in the world. Um, today, it's really the Place Vendôme, not the Rue de la Paix, that houses the legs of, you know, today's most oh, luxe fashion brands. Because if you walk around, you will see Dior, Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Scaparelli, who all have boutiques, ateliers in the Place Vendôme Plaza. Not to mention the Ritz Paris, which is located just around the way. Um, it is one of the most expensive hotels probably in the entire world. I think the cheapest room at the Ritz starts at $1,500 and goes up to something like $35,000 <laughs> per night. So this Holy is what we're moly. talking about. <laughs> I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. We hope that you enjoyed our first ever walking tour, part one and part two. May you ruminate on the actual business of shopping next time you get dressed. And if you'd like to reach out to us on email, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. We're, of course, always posting images on our Instagram handle at dress underscore podcast. Those also translate to Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. Yeah. And do you live in another city where you think that you have a street that might deserve a dressed fashion history walking tour? If so, let us know. Again, you can reach out to us at any of the handles that Cass just mentioned. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you soon. Dressed, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.